You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of the Grange Gorman murders. Grange Gorman is a small townland in the north inner city of Dublin. It's between the village of Stonybatter and Fibsborough, and today is mainly taken up by housing and the new Dublin Institute of Technology campus. But up until DIT's opening, it had mainly been known for being the location of St. Brendan's Psychiatric Hospital. Nearly directly across from the old hospital entrance is a terrace of houses, five in total, Orchard View. It was owned and operated by the Eastern Health Board as a sort of halfway house for psychiatric patients who were re-entering the community to get them used to living outside of the institution and, in some cases, living independently. Numbers 1 and 2 Orchard View were both used with a view to get patients ready for full reintegration into society, whereas numbers 3 to 5 were all interconnected buildings with access to a nurse around the clock to provide care to the 12 patients who lived there, as they were not considered as stable as the up to 7 patients who were residents in numbers 1 and 2. In March of 1997, number 1 Orchard View was running like a well-oiled machine. It had three residents at the time, The fourth and only male had been kicked out in January of that year after the hospital had gotten complaints that he kept having visitors, mainly women, over to the house who stayed late into the night. The three women who lived in the place kept the house immaculately clean, tidy and organised. Mary Callanan was a 61-year-old and she had been an inpatient in the hospital since 1966. She was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. She was an only child, and her health problems had begun when both of her parents had died in the early 1960s. She had, by all accounts, a good childhood, and the loss of her parents had hit her hard. She lived in Orchard View since 1988, after being placed in a high-dependency hostel, before graduating to her own room in the house. She worked in a sheltered workshop in Finglas, and got on well with those around her. She was described as high-functioning. Sylvia Shields was 60 years old, and had first been admitted to St. Brendan's in 1980. She had chronic schizophrenia with severe borderline personality disorder, and on top of all that, epilepsy. She was moved out of the hospital to sheltered accommodation in Stanhope Terrace, and had moved to Orchard View in 1994. She lived off a pension that she had from her work in the civil service. She had a supportive family, and she was close to her two siblings. Anne Myrna was the third resident of Orchard View at the time. She was younger, at 46. She had moved to the house in September of 1996, but she had been attending mental health services since 1973 with her first suicide attempt in her early 20s. She was a self-harmer and had borderline personality disorder and also suffered from epilepsy. The three women got on well and had a good routine with one another. They took meals together and made sure to set three places for breakfast every night at the dining table downstairs. They shared that room, 
the sitting room, which had a TV and four armchairs, the kitchen and the bathroom in the house. The house was surrounded by a front and back garden, enclosed by a six-foot wall to the back and a small three-foot wall to the front. The back garden had a gate that was kept closed by an old cooker that had never been gotten rid of. On Thursday the 6th of March, 1997, Anne left the house to go to a bingo night being held in a parish hall on Prussia Street. She said goodbye to the two other women, who also declined her offer of picking up some chips from the chipper on the way home. They planned on going to bed early that night. On her way to the hall, she ran into another neighbour and asked him if he would call into number one and get her roommates to check to make sure she had turned the iron off that she had been using in the dining room. When he knocked, Sylvie answered the door and said that all was well within the house. Anne won about ten pounds at the bingo and was delighted when she headed home. She called into the chip shop and got two bags, one for herself and one for the nurse who was on nights in number five. Anne popped into number five and delivered her chips and had a quick chat with the nurse there. She got back to the house at about half eleven and called into Sylvia to tell her about her winnings. She didn't look in on Mary. Anne always had trouble sleeping. I relate. So guess what she did? She played music through a Walkman and earphones in bed. Again, I relate. She also slept with her head covered by a blanket, something that was necessary for her to achieve sleep at all which she thought might have had something to do with being sexually abused as a child. At 6am the next morning, Anne got up, put on her dressing gown, and headed downstairs to have her breakfast with her roommates, the same as every morning. When she got down the stairs, she saw her handbag was at the bottom of the stairs, rather than being on the coffee table where she had left it. It had been upended and emptied out. The light was also on in the dining room as she walked past. Then she noticed smears of blood on the light switch. She headed to the kitchen. The kitchen window was open and the lace curtain was blowing in the breeze. One of the drawers had been pulled out and left on the floor. She spotted broken glass. Anne ran back up the stairs calling for Sylvia. When she heard no answer, she burst into the room. What she saw when she opened that door, she would never forget. Sylvia lay on the side of her bed, on her back, with her feet on the floor. Her nightdress had been pulled up over her chest, and there was blood on her neck, chest, and the bedsheets. Anne approached her and shook her gently, but she realized that Sylvia was dead. Anne thought that whoever had done this to Sylvia might still be in the house, so she ran back down the stairs and out the front door without checking on Mary. She noticed that the chain on the front door was no longer locked up, which she knew she had pulled the night before. She ran to the middle of the road and stood there in a panic, not sure what to do. She was seen by some people, but they didn't approach her because she seemed agitated and they assumed she was from the nearby hospital. Eventually, she realized she hadn't checked on Mary, but still afraid that the attacker might still be in the house, she ran down the terrace to number five and yelled for the nurse on duty to help her. The nurse had to calm Anne down. She wasn't making any sense, but eventually she got the story out of her. She thought that Anne's hysterical behaviour might upset the other residents, so she brought her into a separate room, and when it became clear that Sylvia had been, at the very least, injured, the nurse notified the security office at the main hospital and the chief nursing officer on duty that morning. The door to number one was open when the two security men got there. First, they went into Anne's room, 
and found nothing, and then the bathroom. Again, nothing. They thought that maybe Anne had had some sort of break or something, because nothing seemed to be wrong, but then they opened the door to Sylvia's room and saw her partially on the bed. The next room initially looked empty, with just an unmade bed, but as they turned to leave, they saw a pair of legs sticking out from between the bed and the front wall of the house. They didn't enter the rooms, but left and went back downstairs where they met the nursing officer and a doctor on call. The doctor visited the rooms and confirmed that there were no signs of life in either women upstairs. The four professionals also noted the mess in the kitchen and the broken glass. The doctor then went to tend to Anne. She was treated for shock as the reality of the situation suddenly washed over her. The guardi at the Bridewell station were called and a patrol car was dispatched to the scene. The two guardi who arrived were accompanied by a Garda recruit on one of his first days on duty. He would tender his resignation shortly after visiting the house. Sergeant Jerry McCarthy was called in to take charge of the scene and tape was put up to cordon off the area. An independent doctor was called to formally pronounce death for the two women, and a note was taken of the few people who had entered the house that morning. When the doctor examined Mary Callanan, it was noted that her nightgown was also pulled up around her chest. A blade from an electric carving knife was lying across her abdomen, and, brace yourselves, there was a red object protruding from her vagina. Full rigor mortis had set in in Sylvia, and had not yet begun in Mary's body. John Harbison arrived to the house on Orchard View by 10am that morning, along with a team from the Technical Bureau. It was the new deputy pathologist's first day. Mary Cassidy was just off a plane. She would go on to later take over the office from Dr. Harbison. They examined Sylvia's body first. She had a slash across her throat and some superficial cuts on her abdomen. There was very little blood present on the bed or the bedroom walls. Her underwear had been partially torn away. Mary had suffered puncture wounds to her chest and had a cut on her face from her upper lip across her cheek. There were wounds on her left breast and other marks on her abdomen. There were indications that the wounds had come from two separate blades. Dr. Harbison was unusually quiet during this examination. It was his habit to narrate his findings at a particular crime scene, but he described this scene as carnage, and when he left, said that he had never seen anything like it in his more than 25 years that he had held the office. The two women's bodies were removed at 7pm that evening to the city morgue at Store Street. Reporters and onlookers gathered to watch the hearses take the remains away. The crowd watched in silence. The post-mortems began on the 8th of March. This time Mary Callanan was the first to be examined. She had 12 stab wounds to the chest. There was a fracture to her ribs, which was caused probably by stamping. There was a visible boot print on her skin. On her neck, along with the slash, there were 36 tentative wounds. The object in her vagina was surgically removed. It turned out that it was a carving fork from the kitchen. Harbison concluded that this was the weapon used to inflict the stab wounds on her chest. It also appeared that her clitoris had been removed or damaged by incisions. She had died from a combination of hemothorax, blood in the chest cavity, caused by stab wounds to the lungs, the cut to her throat, and the stab wounds to her heart. Sylvia had been stabbed twice in the heart, 
and had further stab wounds to her head. Her throat had been cut too. She had also suffered damage to her genitals, probably inflicted after death. Her cause of death was much the same, hemothorax and a cut to the throat, along with stab wounds to her heart and lungs. The temperature of the bodies were similar at the scene, indicating that the two women had died around the same time. Blood spatter patterns showed that both women had been attacked and killed while they were still lying down. The two-pronged carving fork, steak knives, and a blade from the electric carving knife used in the attacks had all come from the house. Most of the injuries to the women had been inflicted after the women's deaths, which explained the lack of blood at the scene of the crime. There was no way to determine how long the perpetrator had spent mutilating the bodies, but it was established that, after he had killed and disfigured Mary and Sylvia, he had gone into Anne's room and stood by her bed for a time. A profiler was brought in due to the unusual nature of the crimes, and a concern expressed by Dr. Harbison that the crime had been sexually motivated, but he felt it beyond his experience to say anything more. Dr. Carl Roberts was called in from the UK. This was the first time that such services were used by the Gardee. He visited the scenes and was given access to all the photographs and reports of the autopsy. He basically had access to everything, except any suspects that the Gardee may have had at the time. The report came with the usual caveats. It was an investigative tool only, that it could not be used as evidence, and was subject to change as new information became available. Dr. Roberts said in his report that the crimes had been committed by one person. It was of a sexual nature, and the perpetrator probably had had violent sexual fantasies, but lacked sexual experience. Hesitation marks indicated that the perpetrator was inexperienced in crime and that these were likely his first murders. He was probably young, in his teens or early twenties, with poor social skills and was socially isolated. He may have known the victims and may have worked or lived near the scene of the crime, either alone or with his parents. It was likely that he had committed burglaries or other acts of violence. He would feel no remorse and there would be no behavioural changes noted in him after the crime. He was extremely dangerous, and likely to re-offend. The scene was preserved for 11 days for the Technical Bureau to carry out their investigations. Access to the house was further limited for a number of months, and Gardy continued to check in on the house to ensure that no one had entered it unauthorised. Surveillance was also set up with the help of a neighbour. There was a thought that the killer may return to the scene to relive his crimes, and so number one was watched very closely. As the scene was investigated, the guardie inspected the broken window in the kitchen. It was a bit confusing. Yes, some of the glass was on the floor in the kitchen, but a lot of the glass was lying outside in the yard, along with a can of soup nearby which had been bought by Mary Callanan. This may have indicated that the glass might have been broken from the inside. The detectives ended up fully reconstructing the window, labelling each piece of broken glass and noting whether it had fallen upside down or not, and where it had ended up, inside or outside. From this painstaking reconstruction, it was discovered that the window had in fact been broken from the outside. It looked as though much of the glass had been removed from the frame by hand and put onto the ground in the yard. 
When the news was announced at a meeting of the investigating team that the issue with the broken window had been resolved and they could put to rest the niggling doubt that the crime scene had been staged, it was met with relief from the team, except one senior officer who approached the member who had made the announcements and gave out, saying that he should have been informed privately of the results. The investigating team would go on to suffer from a lack of information provided to the general investigating team, with senior members preferring to keep select information confined to the, quote, top table only, that is, within the senior ranks. There were finger marks left on the window frame consistent with someone who was wearing gloves, made of wool or some other woven material, and there were also bloodstains found on the frame, but not enough to get DNA from in 1997. A print left in blood from a boot was found on the linoleum flooring in the unused bedroom. It stood out because the room was otherwise spotlessly clean. It was photographed and then the piece of lino was cut out and brought back to the laboratory and enhanced. It was an impression left from a caterpillar boot. None of the people who had entered the house that morning had been wearing that sort of shoe. But the crime scene was remarkably clean of evidence. There was some blood staining around the house. Most chillingly, there were the blood stains found inside Anne Myrna's room, on the inside door, and on the edge of her mattress. It looked likely that whoever had committed the crime had entered Anne's room and stood next to her bed while she was sleeping. The Gardaí then expanded their searches and inquiries and called house to house looking for information about what people had seen or heard in the area the night of the attack. Three homeless men were seen in the area that night and were reported as acting suspicious. But after Agarda saw three men climbing into the back of a lorry truck a few nights later, the three were identified and ruled out. They had slept in the lorry on the night of the murders as well. 265 people were identified as persons of interest, and each was questioned about their movements and their alibis, and had blood and hair samples taken. Every single one of them cooperated with the Gardee. In early July 1997, Chief Superintendent Dick Kelly appeared on RTE's crime call and appealed for anyone with information regarding the murders to come forward. He also said he wanted people in the area who had been victims of crimes to come forward at this time, whether the incident had been reported to the Gardaí or not. They were going off the basis of the profiler's report that whoever had committed the murders had probably committed other petty crimes in the area. The response to this appeal was of course huge, but of particular interest were two calls from people whose homes had been broken into. In one case, the guardie had been called and the burglar had been arrested. In the other case, the homeowner had recognised the intruder and chased him off. The guardie would have to follow up on the names of the two young men that had been given. Both of them were in prison at the time. The first guy, who was in Mountjoy, cooperated fully with the guardie when he found out what they were investigating. He had been in prison when the murders happened. Dead end. The second guy, let's call him Paddy, was in Wheatfield at this time. He didn't want to help the guardie when he was first approached, but after they left, his colleagues in the prison had told him that he should help them out given the nature of the murder. He decided he wouldn't be able to forgive himself if something similar had happened and he could have helped, 
so the guardi came back out to the prison to interview him. Paddy said that, although he was technically in prison the day of the murder, he had actually been released for one charge and picked up at the gate of the prison by the guardi for another charge and brought to Kilmainham Garda Station that day. He was remanded back into custody that day by the district court, so he certainly had no direct involvement in the crime. But he had been released on the 14th of March and met up with his girlfriend, who was a heroin addict and sex worker, who plied her trade in Ben Burb Street. While he was waiting for his girlfriend to finish up her work, he waited outside a homeless hostel and ran into the other guy that the guardie had looked into. He was there with three other men, one of them being another heroin addict, Dean Dino Lyons. Their conversation turned to the murders that had happened nearby recently, and as the men made comments that there was, quote, no need to rape that granny, end quote, Dino seemed to get upset. He told the other guys to shut up, and that they'd get a punch for talking like that one of these days. That was all Patty knew. Dean Lyons was born on the 20th of April, 1973, and was the middle of seven children. He had three brothers and three sisters. He began having difficulties in school at an early stage, and his mother, Sheila, began the fight to have him assessed. Eventually, he was seen at the children's unit of St. John of God's Hospital, and he was identified as having special needs. When he went to primary school in Tala, he was described as a very well-behaved student, and he never got into any trouble. The same was said of him when he went to secondary school. He left at 16 after his intercert, which was not at all unusual at the time. He began working, but also fell in with a bad crowd and began experimenting with drugs. This is what led to his addiction with heroin. Eventually, he had to leave his family home due to his drug problem, but he still had a good relationship with his family, and he was always welcome back in the house for a change of clothes and a wash. He drifted further and further into the homeless scene in the inner city of Dublin and became a regular at the various hostels and rough sleeping sites. Again, he was well-liked by the other druggies he knew. He was well-known to be a soft touch and would share his deals of heroin and money with other people with little to no convincing. He was known for petty theft, mainly of the conspicuous mobile phones that were beginning to pop up in the city, being left in cars with nice big aerials to let everyone know that there was a phone in there. He would then sell them for money to feed his habit. The Gardaí were sincerely suspicious of Dean Lyon's reaction to the conversation, and they decided to look into him and find out where he was living. They also decided that they needed to talk to the prisoner in Mount Joy again. They met him at the gates when he was released two days later, and he went with them to the Bridewell. He described a conversation with him and four other people, including Dean Lyons, outside the hostel. They had been talking about a burglary that had been committed sometime earlier by Dean Lyons and another, let's call him Anto, and that one of them had left their social welfare card behind. Basically, government-issued ID. They ended up having to go back to the house, and there had been a scuffle there, which was somewhere up in Grange Gorman. At this point, Lyons got really agitated and grabbed Anto by the neck, screaming at him to shut up. The next day, the prisoner had run into Dean Lyons and Anto again, and the two had told him that they were going down the country. But he knew that they hadn't left, and were deliberately avoiding him because of what he knew about the burglary. 
The guardie checked out those that had purportedly also been present for the conversation, but they all denied that they had heard anything that implicated Anto and Dean Lyons in the murders. When Paddy was questioned again, he admitted that he had made it all up, but insisted that his girlfriend had heard Dean admit to the murders, but he went on to insist that his girlfriend had heard Dean admit to the murders. She denied this. When confronted with this, Paddy said he'd lied again, and that Dean Lyons had admitted the whole thing to him himself. So the connection to Dean Lyons and Anto seemed to be getting weaker, but the two still had to be thoroughly checked out. They were, after all, relying on statements given by known heroin addicts, so it wasn't unusual that the accounts could be confused or muddled. They tracked Dean down to a hostel that was adjacent to St. Brendan's Hospital, known as the Army Hostel in Grange Gorman. He either stayed there or in another abandoned building on the same site. The guardie called out to the complex and asked Dean to come back to the Bridewell to chat with them about the murders. They wanted fingerprints and samples, but they assured him he wasn't being arrested. Dean agreed to go with them. After giving his prints and samples, he had a rather friendly chat with the guardie. He told them about his addiction issues and his home life and said that he didn't know where he was on the night of the 5th or 6th of March. Maybe he was in the army hostel, but the guardie pointed out that his name wasn't on the register for that night, so he didn't dispute that he wasn't there. He shrugged his shoulders. I don't know where I was. He admitted to knowing Anto and that they did do heroin together. The guardie warned him that they had fingerprints from the scene of the murders, and that if they turned out to be his, then he would be in a world of trouble. But then, Dean said, he had in fact been in Number One Orchard View about a year and a half before the murders. He knew one of the lady's nephews, the one who had lived, and had called round to the house to give the woman a message once. But the guardie pointed out that Anne had only moved into the house the previous September, so what he had said couldn't be true. The timing was off. At this, Dean's whole demeanour changed. He got upset and nervous and wouldn't meet the guardie's eyes. They asked him if he was all right, and he whispered, quote, I killed the two old ladies. I'm sorry, end quote. The shocked guardie immediately shut their friendly chat down and issued a caution to Dean. You're not obliged to say anything. Anything you do say will be taken down in writing. He said his family would never forgive him. He cried as the guardie escorted him out for his quote-unquote arrest in a public place. The guardie were doing this by the book. He said he didn't want a solicitor, he just wanted to call his mother. His mom wasn't home, so he told his sister what had happened and handed the phone back to the guarda. Eventually, just around half three, his mother returned his call and he cried down the phone to her, saying he had done it. He killed the two women up at St. Brendan's. When she turned up at the station a few hours later, she was permitted to visit him, and he tearfully told her again that he had done it. Later, he told his father the same thing. His father didn't believe him, though, and said his lies were going to destroy the entire family. But Dean was insistent. He had committed the Grange Gorman murders. A doctor had visited Dean during his detention to prescribe methadone to him to help him with his heroin withdrawals. It was given to him by the guardie later that evening after Dean was interviewed two times, what ended up being three times in total that weekend. 
At the time, it was up to the person in custody to decide if the interview should be recorded. Dean consented to the recording in the first interview, but would not give his consent to the subsequent interview. The other interviews were recorded by hand by the guardee. He was also brought in a patrol car to the area of the murders and asked to point out various places he had mentioned during his statements. In his first statement to the guardie, he said he had broken into the house through a little window at the side or around the back of the house. He had rooted around inside looking for things to steal and the women had heard him. He attacked both of them and left. Or he may have attacked them when he went back to find his social welfare card. He told them two versions. He said after the attack, his mind went blank. He said he had attacked the women on the landing of the stairs, but then he said that he had told them to go back to their rooms, where he attacked them with a knife he found in the kitchen. He said he'd been wearing leather gloves and burned the clothes that he had been wearing in the place that he had stayed that night. He also said that he had met a friend that night who was a sex worker on Ben Burb Street named Molly, and... They had gone to Inchicore to score heroin before he had returned back to Grange Gorman to settle down for the night. He couldn't remember the layout of the house, or many details about anything else, because of the amount of heroin he was on. He said he had told some people about the attack, but didn't specifically remember telling anything to Anto. Maybe he had when he was high, he said. He told the guardie that he was on his own when he committed the murders, and insisted that Anto definitely wasn't there. He only really remembered killing one woman. He said he had nothing against women, or older women in particular, and in fact he had a girlfriend who was pregnant with his first child. He said she was due in a month. Two hours after this first statement, Dean was interviewed again, this time without a video recording. He was asked again to describe the events of the 6th of March. He told the guardie about his day, buying heroin and meeting friends. He told them that that evening he wanted money to go buy more heroin, so he broke into a house at the back kitchen window. He said that he had to remove glass from the window to get through. He dropped his social welfare card while there and ended up having to go back for it. This time, though, he went upstairs to check for money. He had stabbed the two women and left. He then gave a written statement. He went into more detail here. He said he had taken four knives from the drawer in the kitchen, including a roasting fork. He described slitting the first woman's throat when she awoke to him in her room and then pulling up her nightdress to cut her chest. He told them about what had happened to the roasting fork, that he had lodged it in the woman. He said he attacked the woman in the next room when she too woke and started screaming when she saw him in her room. He said that he had felt pleasure when he stabbed her and had become aroused and climaxed because of it. He then looked around the dining room and left the house. After it was done, he began to regret it. Overnight, the guardie went about trying to corroborate Dean's evidence. They looked for a sex worker named Molly that he had mentioned and found one, but she didn't know Lyons. He wasn't able to identify his Molly from the book with the pictures and names of the women known to frequent the Ben Burb Street strip either. They tracked down Dean's supposed girlfriend, who informed them that one, she wasn't his girlfriend, and two, she was most certainly not pregnant. She further told him that Dean was only really tolerated in her group of friends because he was generally happy to share his drugs. 
Otherwise, they thought he was a bit odd. The Gardaí found that there were no signs of burning, nor any of the clothing that Dean had told them about near the army hostel, or with the people that he had mentioned leaving them with. The next morning, the two Gardaí who were to interview Dean were both quite sure that he had been lying. They decided that they would put this to Dean and give him the opportunity to admit that he had made the whole story up. But when confronted with this, this idea that he was lying, Dean blew up. He became aggressive and demanded to make another statement in which he described the murder of the two women. When he was done, he sat back in his chair and crossed his arms across his chest, refusing to say any more. At 9.35am on Sunday the 27th of July 1997, Dean Lyons was arrested for the murder of Mary Callanan. When he was brought to a special sitting of the district court to be charged and remanded in custody, the place was a circus. Reporters and members of the public, and some members of the Gardee, had turned up to see who was responsible for these two horrific deaths. But they were met with this skinny, pale-faced Dean Lyons, not what they were expecting given the brutality of the crime. He was appointed free legal aid, and he requested Armand Garrett Sheehan to represent him. He was brought to Arbor Hill rather than Mount Joy, as the prison authorities figured that he might be in danger of some thug in Mount Joy deciding to have a go at him. Arbor Hill housed mainly murderers and rapists, and bizarrely, their new detainee was probably safer there. When being given a rundown on prison life by one of the prison officers, Dean made further admissions, telling him that he had done the murders when he was stoned out of his head on heroin, and had gone into the house looking for mobile phones. He would later go on to talk about Molly, burning his clothes and wearing gloves. He also chatted to other inmates about his crime, and one in particular approached the guardee, saying not only had Dean reiterated his story to him, but he had also said that there was another person in on the crime, and that this other guy had been the person that mutilated the bodies. Dean also told a similar story to his father, who in turn told the police. He didn't believe that his son had committed the murders and figured if he was there at all, he was trying to rob the house while whoever he was with had committed the heinous acts. When the guardee looked into those named as accomplices, it turned out that the stories didn't hold water. What they did find out, however, was that Dean Lyons had been arrested about six hours after the bodies had been discovered at Orchard View. He and two others had stolen CDs from HMV and Grafton Street and sold the discs to passers-by. They took the money and headed by taxi to Dolphin's Barn to get heroin before going to Rialto to shoot up. They were spotted by an off-duty Garda who rang his station and went out to empty the house that they had broken into. They were arrested for a number of public order offences and then headed to court that afternoon and were released on bail. The guardie who had dealt with Dean that day were interviewed. There were no scratches on him, no bloodstains that they could see. Dean had failed to mention any of this to the guardie when he was being questioned about the murder of Mary Callanan and Sylvia Shields. While the guardie were preparing the book of evidence to be sent to the DPP and then have it served on Dean's legal team, Garrett Sheehan was going about making a start of Dean's defence. After speaking to his client, he arranged for Dr. Charles Smith, the director of the Central Mental Hospital in Dundrum, to examine Dean. 
During his interview with Dr. Smith, Dean again made admissions and said that he had committed the murders. But Dr. Smith's report outlined that he didn't believe Dean was telling the truth. Dr. Geasley Goodjohnson, a professor of forensic psychology at King's College London, was also called over by Sheehan to examine Dean. He was a world-renowned psychologist and created both the suggestibility scale and the compliance scale, which can be used to determine how suggestible a person may be, particularly in a setting such as a police station. He placed Dean in the top 5% with regard to suggestibility, and not only was he easily led, he was also in heroin withdrawal when the first interview with him took place. The doctor pointed out that the guardie had not given Dean his methadone until after he had confessed. It had been over 24 hours since his last fix, and Dean wasn't given the medication until three hours after he had seen the doctor. The DPP also arranged to have Dean assessed, and their expert, Dr. Adrian Grounds, viewed his interview tape, interviewed Dean's family, and eventually, when the defence allowed it, Dean himself. He agreed with the defence's experts that Dean was highly suggestible and that he was totally unreliable as a witness, not only due to his low IQ and his tendency to be easily led, but also because he was eager to please. This whole thing was not adding up, and many of the mid- and junior-level guardee brought concerns to their seniors that the evidence just wasn't there. But their concerns went unignored and this would have disastrous results for Dean Lyons and for the Gardee. In early 1996, Catherine and Carl Doyle fulfilled a long-held dream that they would be able to move their young family to a small farm in the countryside. They took their four kids, aged 13 months to seven years, and moved to the townland of Carron, near Ballantubber in County Roscommon. They went about renovating a small cottage that was now theirs, and settling into the small community around them. Carl began working in a meat factory in Ballyhawness, a larger nearby town, and their family from Dublin visited regularly. The weekend of the 15th to the 17th of August 1997, Catherine and Carl were expecting Catherine's younger sister, Sarah Jane, along with her five-month-old baby, her new partner, Mark Nash, and his 11-month-old baby. Sarah Jane and Mark had started going out together in April of that year, when Sarah Jane had left her baby's father. Mark had also just gone through a breakup. They met at a nightclub in the city centre and hit it off talking about their little babies. They moved in together within a month to a flat in Prussia Street, but soon moved, as Mark's ex-partner also lived there, and they ended up in a flat in one of the houses on Clonliffe Road. They argued constantly, and their neighbours often heard their fights, and after witnessing his increasingly erratic behaviour including once throwing a drawer full of his own feces out the window and into the backyard, the other tenants began lodging complaints with their landlord. He definitely had a problem with aggression. He had physically attacked his ex and was verbally abusive to Sarah Jane's family. Mark Nash was born in April of 1973 in Huddersfield, UK. His father had moved to Australia, never knowing of his son's existence. Mark was a troublemaker in school and left when he was 16, 
and never ended up getting a job after that. That same year, he was convicted of assault causing harm and sexual assault on a 15-year-old girl that he had attacked after she rebuffed him in the street. He had punched and kicked her and was in the process of pulling off her underwear when passers-by intervened. Eventually, his mother kicked him out of the house when he was 18 when he threatened to kill her. When he came to the attention of the local police after being arrested for drug offences in October of 1996, he and his girlfriend, along with their newborn baby, took off to Ireland. But that weekend in August, Nash and his new girlfriend, Sarah Jane, caught an evening train from Houston Station to Castle Ray. They carried the sleeping babies to a waiting car when they arrived, and Carl drove them back to the house. The kids were all in bed, and the adults had a few drinks and chatted in the living room. At about 1am, Mark said he was feeling sick and went to the bathroom to throw up. Carl was asleep on the couch, and the sisters decided to sort out beds for the little ones and went upstairs. When they heard someone on the stairs, they had no reason to be worried, and it wasn't until the door of the room that they were in opened, and Sarah Jane turned to see Mark with a mad look in his eyes and holding a hammer that fear took them. He hit Sarah Jane on the back of the head, and when Catherine tried to throw herself between them, he beat her over and over on the head with the hammer. There was a frenzied attack on the two women, both attempting to save the other, as Catherine's six-year-old son, now awake in the bed, looked on, silently, in horror. When Nash's attention turned back to Catherine, Sarah Jane lurched towards the door and down the stairs to try and get help from Carl. When she got to him on the couch, she shook him, pleading for help. She didn't initially realize that he had been stabbed in the chest and was already dead. She heard footsteps descending and Mark called out her name in a sing-song voice. She ran out to the garden and hid in the nearby long grass, not wanting to go too far from the kids. She stayed quiet and he began screaming her name. He went back into the house and she heard him rummaging around downstairs. As she approached the house to make sure he wasn't going near the children, he burst from the back door once again and ran into the fields calling her name. She saw a light flick on in a nearby house and crawled on her hands and knees so as not to be seen, bleeding heavily from her wounds towards the house. When she got close, she jumped up and ran the final few steps. The neighbours awoke to Sarah Jane banging on their front door, pleading for help. He brought her into the house and she asked for him to get help for the kids. He rang the guardie. They were on their way. When they opened the door to the cottage, they could hear the kids crying and found the bodies of Catherine and Carl. The guardie stayed with the kids in their bedrooms so they didn't have to see the bodies of their parents downstairs. Catherine's body had been found in the kitchen, fully dressed, lying on her back with her legs spread wide apart. The kids were eventually taken to hospital, along with Sarah Jane. Dr. Harbison was called. The hunt for Mark Nash began. He was unfamiliar with the area, being originally from England, and only ever having lived in the Dublin area. The guardie also thought that he would probably be easily recognised because he was of Afro-Caribbean descent amongst the very white Irish farmers. But they were wrong. As the day passed, there were sightings of Mark walking the railway line and then a burglary reported about 2pm 
where a bike and some clothing were stolen. The sightings continued, and the Gardaí feared that he would soon reach Galway, where he'd much more easily be able to blend in to the crowds of students and tourists. He was spotted a number of times, but the Gardaí were playing catch-up with him. Then, just after seven, Mark was spotted cycling on a road, and the caller to the Gardaí was still watching him. He had a mobile phone, very rare for 1997. And so a Garda car was dispatched to the location. When the Gardaí stopped him, Mark dropped his bike and pulled the hammer out of his pocket, telling them to stay away or he'd kill them. He then tried to throw himself in front of a passing van, trying to hijack it. When that didn't work, he launched himself towards the open door of a nearby house. There was a woman standing in the doorway watching the commotion. Her son heard her cry out when Nash pushed his way in and started wrestling with her, and the young man tackled Nash, pinning him to the ground. The guardie rushed in to aid him. The manhunt was over. He was aggressive on the way back to the station, but after a few minutes inside, he asked to speak to the member in charge of the station, who agreed after a caution. He admitted killing Catherine and Carl. He would later state that he had also killed two women in Stony Batter a few months previous, when he broke in through their kitchen window. He said he hadn't been in his right mind when that had happened. But the Gardaí and Roscommon were not in a position to question Nash about what they soon realised were the Grange-Gorman murders, and they steered the conversation away from them to focus solely on the murders he had just committed. He would have to be interviewed separately about those murders at some point. Mark Nash appeared before a special sitting of the Galway District Court on Sunday the 17th of August, 1997, and was charged with the murders and remanded in custody. After this, he was informed that he was going to be questioned in relation to the murders of Mary Callanan and Sylvia Shields, and he indicated that he understood this. He gave a full statement outlining his murders of the two women, saying that he had been out drinking that night and got lost on his walk home. He didn't know what had come over him, but he broke into the house through the kitchen window after covering his hands in stockings and then murdered the two women. He described standing at the side of Anne Myrna's bed, who he noticed was wearing black headphones, when he came back to his senses and ran back down the stairs and went home. He had gotten rid of all his clothing from that night, except for a black velvet jacket, which was still in his closet in his new flat on Clonliffe Road. They could take it if they wanted, he said. He later sketched out the house, and when he was being transferred to Mount Joy, he actually directed the officers, who were not from Dublin, right to the house in Grange Gorman. On the 27th of August, 1997, Assistant Garda Commissioner Jim McHugh arrived at the incident room in the Bridewell station and informed the Gardaí that, due to the admissions made by Nash, an internal investigation into the murder files was being launched. Top brass of the Gardaí were rightly concerned that someone had just confessed to two murders that someone was currently sitting in jail awaiting trial for. There had been mixed feelings about Dean Lyon's responsibility and reliability in the case, with some of the more junior members of the team conveying to the seniors that they were not sure Dean Lyons was to be believed. These fell on deaf ears, however, until the McHugh inquiry was launched that day. The inquiry got underway, and word slowly leaked out to the press, 
but as the case was due before the courts, they had to be very careful about what they printed in order that they didn't jeopardize any part of any trial that might take place. They reported that an inquiry was underway, and one journalist wrote an article outlining that another person had made a confession in relation to the crime, but no more. During the inquiry itself, it became clear that the senior officers were singing from a different hymn sheet than the mid- and lower-level officers. They insisted that there had been no concern voiced over the truthfulness of Dean's statements, where the lower-ranking guardy were adamant that they had told their seniors that they had deep reservations about Lyons's confessions. But there was overwhelming evidence that the rank-and-file guardy had brought these concerns to their senior officers, including a statement made by a member of the investigating team to a forensic specialist that Dean Lyons was like Walter Mitty, the original, of course, and that he was just daydreaming things up. At the conclusion of the report, Assistant Commissioner McHugh recommended that the charges against Lyons be dropped. At this stage, Lyons's next appearance before the court was to be the 29th of April 1998. He had, in the intervening months, been charged and pled guilty to two counts of robbery with a syringe, and was serving a six-year sentence for those charges. The court was packed out, as rumours had flown that there was to be a big development in the Grange-Gorman murder case. Lyons sat stunned as he was informed by the judge that the charges against him were dropped, and there was uproar in the courtroom. But Dean was still to play a vital role in the investigation of the Grange-Gorman murders. See, as the investigating team was doubling down to get evidence against Nash, they were acutely aware that it would be eventually argued by Nash's defence team that similar admissions had been made by Lyons and that he had even been charged with the murders. On that basis, they would seek to have Nash's admissions barred from use during the trial. So Lyons would have to give an account of what had brought him to make such statements. He would have to explain himself and give evidence for the state. After stewing in jail for a short period, Mark Nash realised what a grave mistake he had made. He wrote a letter to the investigating team retracting his admissions about the Grange-Gorman murders. He said his confession had been due to severe mental anguish and distress and that the details he had given were the result of prompting from the interviewing Gardy, the publicity about the case and having overheard Gardy talk about the murders at a Garda checkpoint. The McHugh inquiry turned to the Gardy out west who had questioned Nash and they reiterated that they had had no knowledge of the murders in Grange-Gorman. Nash got a visit from the detectives, who asked him to identify a pair of caterpillar boots, like the ones that had left the print in the house, which they found in his closet in Clonliffe Road. Nash accepted that these were his boots. The next day, a suicide note was found in a routine search of Nash's cell. It denied his involvement in the crimes, but did say that he had been present at one orchard view. He said he had been passing the house at 3am on the morning of the murders and saw a man run out of the house. He went in to investigate and had seen what had happened to the poor women inside. He was trying to explain any forensic link that he might have to the crime scene, but the guardy weren't buying it and, in any event, he never managed to commit suicide. He was arrested on the 18th of December, 1999, in relation to the Grange-Gorman murders, while in Arbor Hill Prison for the murders of Catherine and Carl Doyle, which he had been convicted of in October after a trial. He had pled not guilty. 
He was brought to the bridewell and questioned. He denied any involvement in the murders of the two women and said he had been coerced into making the earlier statements. He was returned to Arbor Hill by 5pm. By 2000, another statement was sought from Dean, as it was hoped that the charges would soon be laid against Nash. Gardy travelled to England, where he was living, and took a lengthy statement from him. He was ready to take the witness stand. All that was left was to get the DPP to bring the charges, and the whole sorry affair could be put to bed. But four days after his last visit from the Gardaí, Dean Lyons was found dead in his rented room. The quote-unquote extra evidence that was required by the DPP to bring charges against Mark Nash had just died. Meanwhile, the Shields and Callanan families were still in the dark as to what had actually happened to their beloved sisters. Up until 1999, it was the case that no inquest would be held into deaths where there was a criminal case pending relating to those deaths. The public and the media understandably said that this, coupled with the silence from the Gardee about the matter, indicated that there was some sort of cover-up going on in relation to the two murders. But in October of 2002, the Dublin City Coroner decided that an inquest would be held. The coroner ordered Mark Nash to attend and for him to give his side of the story, but Nash's defence team objected, saying that it would be prejudicial to him and the coroner decided not to push the matter. As the harrowing details of the crime were recounted to the jury at the inquest, the coroner allowed frequent short breaks to attempt to relieve some of the awful pressure on those involved. The families thought that the inquest may be the only opportunity for them to find out what had happened to their relatives, and by the end of the proceedings, at least they now knew how their sisters had died. Whatever little comfort that might have provided. In February 2006, a commission of investigation was set up under a prominent senior counsel, George Birmingham, to look into the circumstances of Dean Lyons' confession and whether the information provided to the DPP the day Lyons was charged was accurate. Birmingham firstly ordered that all costs of Dean Lyons' family be covered and then stated that Lyons had been an exceptionally vulnerable person who not only had a learning disability but also a serious addiction to heroin. He was sceptical of Dean's claims that he had in some way been coerced into making the statements, or that he had fully believed that he would be released and could then get his fix if he had confessed. In fact, many of the admissions he had made were after he had been given his dose of methadone. He found that Dean may have come to believe that he had committed the murders, or perhaps he wanted to go to prison as he was struggling on the streets. Though no coercion was found, Birmingham concluded that Dean was very good at picking up information and that he had been asked leading questions, which corrected his statement as he went along. He concluded that the officers in charge had not critically assessed Lyon's statements, despite the fact that an attempt was being made to corroborate them. They also seemed to be accepting what he had said at face value. In essence, they were substantiating the claims rather than investigating them which, in any event, they were unable to do. He noted that some of the mid-ranking officers had registered their doubts with the head of the investigation, who would continue to believe Dean Lyon's confession, even when it could not at all be corroborated. He said, given that the majority of the case was based on these admissions, the Gardaí should have informed the DPP about the problems with Lyon's confessions. 
If the DPP had been made aware of these doubts, it was possible that no charges would have been laid that day in July. The report was leaked to the press by one of the guardee who had received a preliminary copy. He had shown it to a reporter, Mick McCaffrey of the Irish Times, as he felt it vindicated him and other guardee who had interviewed Dean regarding their behaviour. They hadn't pressured him or ill-treated him, the report said. In a fit of pique, the Garda Síochána pursued this leak as a criminal charge against the member, and two years later, when he was before the circuit court, he pled guilty to leaking the report and was given a 12-month suspended sentence and a €5,000 fine. He was also summarily dismissed from the force, a mere 12 months before he was to retire with a full pension. Meanwhile, Mark Nash was serving his time for the double murder of Catherine and Carl Doyle. He could not be charged with the murders of Mary Callanan or Sylvia Shields, absent of some further solid corroborating evidence, given that he had retracted his confessions and Dean Lyons had passed away. He petitioned the government to be transferred to England to serve the rest of his sentence, but the Guardi vigorously opposed this. If he was allowed to leave for an English prison, there was little chance that he would ever be charged with the murders. They hoped that advancements in DNA and other forensic evidence might eventually give them the independent evidence that they required. In March of 2004, moves towards re-examining and testing the evidence that had been stored began. Amongst the items stored were Mark Nash's caterpillar boots and a black velvet jacket. When the jacket was first collected, it had been noted that there was a tiny bloodstain on one of the buttons on its cuff, but at the time, the sample was too small to test. In late 2009, the button was finally tested and the jacket was sent for by the lab at the Garda headquarters at the Phoenix Park. The blood on the button matched Sylvia Shields. When the jacket was examined further in the lab, they picked it open near where the button had been and found another bloodstain, this time containing Mary Callanan's DNA. On the 9th of October, the DPP gave permission for charges to be laid against Mark Nash for the Grange Gorman murders. Nash was brought to the district court the next morning. He had only been told of the appointment at the last minute to avoid any scene he might decide to make, and it was arranged that there would be enough staff at the court just in case the press caught wind of the developments. Nash made no response to the charges when read to him upon his arrest. The judge at the district court remanded him in custody for the murders and he returned to his jail cell. But Nash's legal team immediately took high court proceedings against the DPP to attempt to stop the office from going ahead with the trial. This matter was only heard in August of 2012, two years after the charging itself. Nash's team argued primarily that there had been an undue delay in the charges being laid, but also cited prejudice from adverse media attention, the fact that a number of witnesses were now dead or otherwise unavailable to give evidence, and failure to preserve the evidence properly. These grounds were rejected by the High Court, and Nash immediately appealed to the Supreme Court, which gave its judgment in January 2015. They also concluded that there had been no undue delay in bringing the case forward. So finally, on the 15th of January 2015, the trial against Mark Nash for the murders of Sylvia Shields and Mary Callanan on the 6th of March 1997 began. 
Opening submissions lasted two days, and so on the 19th of January, the presentation of evidence began to the jury of seven men and five women. Gardy gave evidence about the progress of the case day to day. Four weeks into the trial, it looked as if the whole thing might fall apart, though. The majority of the four weeks had been spent in pretty tedious legal argument, but when a juror asked to be excused for one day the following week and told the judge that he was about to sit an aptitude test for entrance to the Garda Shiakana, this was a huge deal. The trial had basically pitted Nash and his reliability against the credibility of the Gardi and their procedures. Now it might be that one of the jurors could be biased in the Gardi's favour. The juror was promptly removed, and then there were eleven. After fifty days, the closing speeches were delivered, and the judge gave his instructions to the jury. They retired on Thursday the 17th of April, just before half two. Just before 3pm the next Monday, the jury returned and asked to see a piece of lino flooring with the boot print on it, and the boot taken from Nash's flat. They went back to deliberations for 30 minutes, and then were ushered back into the courtroom. They had a verdict. Mark Nash was found guilty on both counts of murder. He had remained disinterested and removed throughout the whole trial, and this remained the case when he heard the verdict. The court was adjourned briefly for half an hour for the two teams to get their submissions in order for sentencing. When everyone returned, the jury heard details of the murders of Catherine and Carl Doyle. It was possible that the jury didn't know he was already in jail on those charges, as a huge effort was gone to to make sure that Nash didn't look like a prisoner in the court. He never had handcuffs or restraints on, and his prison officer sat a distance from him throughout. A victim impact statement was read by Sylvia Shields' niece, outlining how the tragedy had impacted their family and how hard it had been for them over those 18 years waiting for justice. The judge refused to backdate Nash's sentence and rejected the defence submissions for mitigation out of hand. When he left the courtroom, he would begin a new set of life sentences, having already served 17 years for the murders of Carl and Caroline Doyle. In November of last year, Mark Nash's case was heard before the Court of Appeal. His senior counsel, Hugh Hartnett, argued that due to the fact that there had been another confession in the case and the 10-year-old DNA evidence that was tested was so minuscule that there was no way to say even what kind of cells they might have come from, that this wasn't sufficient evidence to convict Nash. He said that there was also a result with mixed DNA from one of those samples. The evidence might have also been contaminated by evidence from the victim's house as they were stored together. With all of these factors seen together, Hartnett argued that the finding of the original trial was unwarranted. In any event, the court has reserved judgment and is still yet to deliver its verdict. Though, I will eat my proverbial hat if they find in Nash's favour. By the time Nash was convicted, it had been 18 years since the deaths of Sylvia Shields and Mary Callanan. The two women had been brutally murdered in the night, in what was not only their home, but a clinically approved safe setting. They died and Anne Myrna was traumatised. Dean Lyons was interrogated despite his vulnerable state. And beyond all that, beyond all that hurt and suffering, the people of Ireland lost confidence in the Gardaí that they could make the right call and get the right guy before he could harm again. 
Thank you for listening to the Mens Rea podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help others to find us, and I love to hear what you think. You can also find us on Twitter and on Facebook at Mens Rea Pod, and check out our discussion group on Facebook too for links to articles and pictures from the cases that we cover. I'd like to take a moment to thank our supporters on Patreon. Thank you to one of our recent sponsors, Ariel Melton. Thank you so much, Ariel. Your support means a lot and helps to cover some of the costs of the production of the show. We'll be announcing new perks, including extra content, available to patrons soon, so keep an eye out. Any small contribution helps. And now to thank our five-star reviewers on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Jetson Bass. Hopefully we have corrected some of those audio issues in the last couple of weeks. Go back and give the older episodes a listen. To Gem X Morris, thanks so much for your compliments about the research. Thank you to Trisha Koss, who listened to the Catherine Nevin two-parter. Thank you for your compliments. And to Mike Heff, thank you so much for giving our three-parter on The Beast of Birkinshaw a chance. I had a very fun week researching and writing that awful story. Thank you for giving it a listen. Thanks to everyone who reviews on iTunes. As I always say, I love to hear from you guys, so do get in touch. Our theme song is Quinn's Song First Dance by Kevin MacLeod. With thanks to Rona McHugh for help with sound engineering. Next time on the Mens Rea podcast, we'll find out about how sometimes it's looking for the cure that will kill you. Till then... Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Someone is seriously hammering. Oh, my dear Jesus, stop hammering. It's in. It's in already. Stop hammering. Oh, you're not done hammering.